Well, it's my joy again just to say another welcome to you if you've arrived since we began and also um, to say hello again to those of you who are tuning in via the live stream. I want to take you for one last time into the Mark's Gospel and I want to read to you uh, from chapter 16 and verses 1 to 8. Mark writes in this way, as the women are approaching the tomb in order to anoint the body of Jesus, lying as they assume dead in that grave. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want to just deal with one of the stranger aspects of the end of Mark's gospel before we get into the meat of this, which is, of course, to note that you see in, in, in your Bibles that it continues on from verse 9 onwards and that we have an extra lengthy ending to, the, to the, the Gospel of Mark, which I haven't read to you, for the simple reason that very few scholars um, believe that those verses are original, were originally wrote by Mark, but rather they, they were added to kind of fill out and round out the ending of the Gospel. And we know this simply because the earliest documents that we have, the earliest copies of Mark's Gospel, end at verse 8. Now, for some of us, that might be a troubling reality because you think, well, how can we be confident about what's in the Bible if people were willing to make these sorts of changes? But I actually think it points us in the very opposite direction. There's only two passages in the whole of the New Testament that have any doubt, and this is this passage and, and a section that's in John's Gospel in the eighth chapter where the woman is caught in adultery. And the scholars are very honest with us. And what this really does is that it reinforces the fact that everything else we have in the New Testament is original, was written by these men in the first century who were either eyewitnesses or in Mark's case, he may have been an eyewitness, but the tradition is that he learned all this from sitting at the feet of the Apostle Peter, one of the greatest of the apostles. And so I I rather think that, um, if anything, this leads us to an, an exceptional level of confidence that what we have was there in the original. And therefore, what it does is it leads us to this kind of head scratching moment where we finish the Gospel of Mark, this extraordinary document telling us the story of the life and ministry and the death and now the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we end it on this note, where he tells us that the women fled from the tomb, trembling with astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that would, you know, for one thing, that tells you why early in the, you know, very early on, it was felt that we need to kind of finish this off somehow. This isn't quite how we want to end Mark's Gospel. Why does it end like this? One answer is that some people have suggested is, well, maybe Mark was caught in the persecutions that began to break out in the 60s. 
in the first century. And uh, under Nero, he was living in Rome when he wrote this, and perhaps he, was, he began, uh, maybe he had to flee. Others suggested probably more likely that the gospel account just, just got damaged, that the end was ripped off. This would have been written on um, some kind of parchment or papyrus, and maybe the end just got ripped off. But even if, whatever, whatever you do to explain this ending, here's why I think it leaves us. It leaves us with a kind of moment, a kind of pregnant moment where you've just heard this extraordinary news of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see these women flee. And as you finish this gospel, you're left to think. You're left to ponder. You're left to wonder about the implications and the power and the life-changing reality of what you've just read. The, the work isn't done for you in the sense that it's not spelled out. The rest of the New Testament does that. It begins to spell out and explain and unfold all of the meaning. But here as we end just this raw account of what took place, just the bare details, none of that's done for us. And I want to challenge you. Why is it so important that we do that? Why is it so important that we meditate on this in this way and wrestle with this? And the answer is because I think of it like this. This little account of the resurrection of Jesus, the shortest of all the Gospels, it's a little bit like a seed. You know, you eat an apple, and you, you, uh, you eventually find your way down to those little brown seeds. Very unimpressive things and horrible to eat, right? But you know that within them, within that unimpressive, dark, small item, is the potential, it has the DNA for life, for a tree which can produce more fruit, and there's something like that going on here when we read this very short account of what is, without question, the most important thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. What we have wrapped up in here, like in seed form, is the meaning and the power and the importance of this event. And I want to try and help you just to kind of unfold that. Now, some people react in different ways when they've read this story. Some have just dismissed it out of hand and said, well, it's just rubbish. It was a fabrication. It was fraudulent. Jesus never was raised from the dead. But I think that's a very difficult thing to do, and not least because Mark, who wrote the gospel, and Peter, who he learned it from, both of them were martyred for these claims. Peter was executed hanging upside down on a cross in Rome. Mark, according to tradition, was dragged through the streets of Alexandria in northern Egypt, where he'd gone to be the first bishop of that city. Dragged by a rope tied round his neck until he died, whether through asphyxiation or through his body being lacerated and torn to pieces. And now I know lots of people die for their faith, and this still takes place today. But here's the difference. Many people will die for what they sincerely believe is true, even for political beliefs and so on. Nobody dies for what they sincerely know is false. And I find that among many other reasons that we could think about, which I'm not going to go into today, I find this a compelling reason why you can't simply dismiss these accounts as a pure fabrication. I think more of us, though, would sit in the camp where we might acknowledge that this is true. These are true facts, but we haven't allowed the truth to penetrate our heart in such a way that it then begins to change your life entirely. And in a way, maybe you're a little bit like the women on that particular occasion. They heard the news of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
But what they hadn't done was understood how it then changed everything they knew about life. And my job today is to try and help us make those connections where maybe we haven't really, to use the kind of the, the theological language, it's appropriated this truth, which means taken hold of it so that it's gone into the deepest parts of you and then reconfigures your entire life. This is what I want us to try and do then. And the way we're going to do it is we're just going to focus upon the angel's words. They walk into the tomb. They encounter this young man, as it were, sat there, an angel of God. And he speaks to them about this announcement of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to show you three things that come out of his words, which are implications of the resurrection, which change everything for us as Christians. The first is this, that he announced the end of fear. He announced the end of fear. He says to the women as they walk into the tomb, his first words are, do not be alarmed. This word alarmed, it means kind of distressed in a heightened state of adrenaline or panic or fear or, dis- or anxiety. It's the same word that you find when you encounter Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, just a couple of chapters earlier, when it says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The same word is used there by Mark to describe Jesus as he's sweating in panic and fear, as it were, it seems, certainly in distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same word is used of these women as they come into the tomb. Now, this speaks on a couple of levels. The one level, it's, it's just talking about the fact that they've, you put yourself in their situation. I think it, any of you would be in a state of alarm. You walk into what you think is an empty cave with nothing but a dead body, and then you see someone talking to you on the other side of the cave. And so at some level, I think the angel is just addressing the sheer panic that must have crossed their face in that particular moment. I encounter this a few times every single week because I will walk around the house, enter a room. My wife might turn around per chance without realizing I'm there and screams at me. This happens on a regular basis. I have no idea why. I remind her every time I live here as well that you realize this. Um, so something like that is going on for these women. As they walk into the tomb, they see the angel he, they, they probably, maybe they screamed, who knows, they panic. He sees it in their face, he says, do not be alarmed. But I think there's more to it than that. As I said, everything that's taught here is like seed form for everything that we understand to be true about the resurrection. And one of the things that you keep seeing is that consequence of the resurrection is the, the way that it, it speaks against and exiles fear from the human heart. What do I mean? Why does the resurrection lead us into a state of total peace. I want to help you understand, first of all, where fear comes from. Why are we afraid? I think that fear goes back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to the fall of humanity. When two things happened which induced a kind of state of fear and anxiety into the human heart. One was that The curse of God fell upon us that we're going to die. It's my conviction that every fear that you struggle with on a day-to-day basis, be that forms of social anxiety, the fear of man, fear of failure, um, dread of things hanging over you of the future, whatever it is that you experience, these fears all ultimately are rooted in the fact of our mortality. Think about the fear of failure. It comes from knowing that this life will end. You think about the fear 
of people. It's rooted, isn't it, in the fact that we can do each other harm, ultimately. So Adam and Eve, they entered into a state of mortality, and that changed everything. Suddenly, fear entered into the human heart in a way that they didn't know before. They knew perfect peace before this, and after it, they knew nothing but fear. Marcus, do you mind just putting that away for now so I can concentrate, please, son? Thank you. The other thing that happened to to Adam and Eve in the garden was this. They were separated from God's love and security. I see this, if ever one of my children's been lost, even momentarily, and I can think of a couple occasions when this has happened, not through negligence, I I want to remind you, but what will happen is the child will panic, feel insecurity, the lack of safety. And I think something like that happened for humanity when we were exiled from the garden. Suddenly, the fact of God's presence, like a father with us, was removed, and we experienced what I would call a kind of cosmic insecurity. If you wake up and you feel an insecurity in life, a fear, a dread in life, what is this but the sense that God, a father, is not with you and for you and over you, making you confident and full of peace. And humanity entered into that state. Therefore, it seems to me to be clear that when the angel addressed these women and says to them, Do not be alarmed. Do not be distressed. Do not be in a state of fear. He wasn't just talking about their moment of panic as they walked into the tomb. He was talking about a new state of mind for the person who knows and believes and appropriates the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly, your mortality is not the the most important thing about you. Death is not the end. If Christ triumphed over death, you and I can have perfect peace in life because we know security in the fact that we will, be, will live beyond death. And more than that, we're brought into this state in which we now know that the Father is for us. The Lord Jesus Christ had trusted in the Father's promises and he'd been vindicated and raised to the Father's right hand. And this is why the Christian now has a rock-solid faith and confidence in the trustworthiness of God, which means that you never need to experience an insecurity in life. You're safe. You're perfectly safe. He says, do not be alarmed. And it's my belief that I know that this is difficult to put into action. I know that there is a sense to which our emotions feel that they run away from us and that are out of our control. But it is my belief that Christians move fundamentally from a state of being in in a position of fear because of the great uncertainties that hang over us to a position of immense confidence and courage and, and hope. I don't think anything else can explain the way the New Testament church became, they went from being like lambs to being like lions, didn't they? They went from being fearful to being unstoppable force in the first century world. Where did this courage come from? It came from the reality, from the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and the way that the Holy Spirit brought that to bear in their hearts and gave them boldness. The the angel was announcing the end of fear. My word to you today, brother or sister, is that you do not need to be in fear in life anymore. Fear can be banished from your heart. He also then announced the end of doubt. The angel said to them these words. He says, do not be alarmed. 
You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And then he says this. It's an invitation. He says, see the place where they laid him. See the place where they laid him. What the angel was doing there was he was beginning. He was opening up a kind of tradition within the Christian faith, which is to expose the Christian faith to investigation. Look for yourself and see whether this is true or not and understand the consequences of what you discover. Now, this is something which is absolutely unique about the Christian faith, simply because no other religion depends on a factual claim like this one that is at the heart of the Christian faith. Now, this is both a negative and a positive. The negative aspect of this is that it exposes Christianity in a uniquely vulnerable way to the reality that it it could be disproved. If it could be shown that this was a fraud, that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, everything that we believe crumbles to the ground. This is something that the Apostle Paul was very, very much acutely aware of when he was going about his ministry. He'd been convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead because he saw him in the flesh, as it were. But he writes, when he's writing to the Corinthians much later in one of his letters, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on and says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, if, if, all, if all of our hope as Christians is just make-believe that only applies to this life only, only makes our lives temporarily better in the here and now, he says, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Because every single thing that you cherish and believe and count as vital and important about the Christian faith begins to fall apart and crumble if this is not true. Begin with Jesus himself. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then he is not the son of God. The resurrection is the moment that vindicates his claims to be God's son. And if he wasn't raised, then he is just a guy. No better than you or me. If Jesus isn't raised, then the salvation that we sing of and cherish, the reality of his death upon the cross for us, All of that is sheer fantasy. He died, sure enough, but his death was just a death. It wasn't a sin-bearing death. It wasn't a death that atoned for your sin and for mine. If Jesus wasn't raised, then there's no future. If his body decomposed in first century Israel, then there's no confidence that there's anything beyond death. Death is the end. There's no future. There's no hope for me or for you or indeed for humanity. In fact, I'd perhaps even go as far as this and say if Jesus wasn't raised, then I think you and I would all have doubts about whether God is real or not. Because everything that Jesus preached about God was conditioned upon him being raised from the dead as a demonstration of the power and majesty of God over death. So you can see, can't you, that when the angel says, see the place where they laid him and sort of begins this this tradition of, of investigation, the, the, the fact that you and I can look into this and decide whether we think it's true or not, it exposed Christianity in a unique way to being disproved. 
Maybe it's all nonsense. Maybe it's all rubbish. But the flip side to this, friends, and this is why I think it chases away all doubt in a unique way, is that we can say this. It means that Christianity is uniquely trustworthy. We're not invited to engage in blind faith. We're invited to believe that something utterly unique happened on that day, that Sunday. Now consider how this sets our faith apart from all other faiths on, on, the, on the planet. Think about how some faiths, you think for example about Buddhism and others, some faiths begin with the conjecture, the speculations or the philosophy of a founder. And you can believe that or you can disbelieve it, but you certainly can't prove whether it's true or not. It's unverifiable. Other faiths begin with the, the so-called revelations of some kind of prophet figure. I think about Mormonism or Islam. And again, you can believe it, you can disbelieve it, it's up to you. You make that step, you make that choice, but it's non-verifiable. We can't prove whether such and such a person really heard from God. Other faiths begin, are, are kind of just the lengthy accumulation of traditions and practices and belief, beliefs, a tapestry that's built up over centuries and millennia. The thing about Hinduism does have sacred texts, but as far as I can tell, it's also just the, 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 the accumulation of beliefs over many, many centuries. Again, it's not something you can test or put up to scru- hold up to scrutiny. And then you think about modern religions. I'm talking about secularism and naturalism. I call them religions because they're worldviews by which you form your entire existence. They're founded on doubt. They're founded on the reality that we cannot be certain of anything, even of what we can see, touch, taste, hear, and smell. Christian faith is not like these other faiths. We say something happened on that day. And the, the reality of it is the bedrock of everything that we believe as Christians. If true, it means that our faith has a certainty that eclipses all doubt. You may be a person who's uncertain about whether to believe the Christian faith or not. Come back to this. Was Jesus raised from the dead? You may be a Christian who in your day-to-day life wrestles one moment with a sense of confidence, the next moment with a sense of doubt. And perhaps that rises and falls with your emotions or with the, the arguments that run through your head. We're all different and we all experience these in different ways. But when the angel says, see, see the place where they laid him. It's the invitation for you to have a faith which is more stable, more certain, more confident than a faith which just sort of wavers in the wind. You need a stronger faith than that in a day and age like ours where Christianity is scorned and ridiculed and mocked. I don't think it's good enough as Christians that we, we remain content in a state of instability. Because it makes us vulnerable, it makes us ineffectual. And we have more than that. We have certainty. And the resurrection is that certainty. And here's what I'm trying to say to you, friends. If you were to build a great structure, like some of the structures we see in London that rise many, many stories high, the first thing that you have to do is dig down deep. And if you dig down into the roots and the foundations of every other religion and worldview, what you'll find eventually is an emptiness at the bottom of it. 
But you go down and down to the bottom of the Christian faith, you find an immovable bedrock reality, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his death, his resurrection from death, that affirms him to be the Son of God who is raised in power to the Father's right hand. And from this flows everything else that we believe. Whenever I have even a moment's questioning, my mind immediately goes back to the certainty of that resurrection moment. See the place where they laid him. He isn't there. He's risen. And upon this basis, this bedrock, you can construct and have a faith by the power of God at work in you that is immovable, that is unshakable. Friends, nothing else explains the indefatigable, totally unwearying energies and passions of the early apostles who went through that, that Roman world preaching this gospel, risking their necks, dying for this. They were certain. They weren't doubtful. They weren't wavering. They weren't wobbling. They were utterly certain. He is raised. Friends, this is what we have. The angel wasn't just announcing the end of fear. He was also announcing the end of doubt. We of all people, we know what we believe. And we are sure of it. This brings me to the last thing. He was also announcing the end of despair. Immediately upon the announcement of the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, what does he say to them? He says, but go tell. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong place altogether. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going where before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him, just as he told you. But go tell his disciples. This is the beginning of the implications of the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. From the very first moment that this was understood and announced, immediately it, it, it propelled a movement, a going, a telling, a mission, which was a consequence of this reality. If this is true, it brings about momentum within the lives of God's people. And why is this, why am I describing this as the end of despair? Well, for this reason, despair is the absence of hope, isn't it? It's the absence of a future, the absence of meaning, the sense that everything ultimately is purposeless. And I I want you to imagine for a second if those women had walked into that tomb on that particular day and they'd seen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ laying there as they had anticipated with their spices that they bought to, to, to anoint him. They could have expressed affection and love toward him. That was their intention. But ultimately, all of their hope, all of their longing, all of their desire for the future terminated and ended upon the dead body of their Lord as he laid there in that tomb. That's what would have happened. And in a sense, if if you ask yourself, what is the situation within the world in which we live right now, the secular world in which we live, in which there is no God, in which we believe only in what is material? I say that this is a pretty good description of of, of life as it is right now for many people who are outside of faith. Everything ends ultimately in despair. 
everything ends ultimately in death. Everything ends ultimately in destruction. We might blind ourselves to it. We might lie to ourselves about it. But ultimately, that's where everything's going. That's where everything terminates. And this should be obvious to you because every single day, every single day, if you read the news, there are fresh announcements of the ways that we're all going to die. Just last year, I read a, a book from that it was released just before the lockdown by an Oxford professor who was writing about all the ways that humanity could destroy itself or die. And he talked about a, a, a global pandemic that could wipe out most of humanity and leave the rest unviable. He's not talking about a blip like COVID. We're talking about the kind of, the kind of genuinely you know, future-shaping, world-changing kind of pandemic that could take us out. We talk, he talked about the possibilities. He was doing mathematical uh, probabilities, uh, calculating how likely these things are to take place. It was a very cheery book. And uh, he talked about the, the, the possibility of nuclear annihilation. You know, some dirty bomb goes off somewhere uh, in the world, and then it, it, it triggers a global nuclear war, and before you know it, there's no humanity. This was genuinely a concern back in the Cold War era, and actually we're not that far away from it at any point in our history. All it takes is the flick of a switch and the press of a button, really. He talked about the possibilities of other reasons for mass extinction. You know, what if the bees all die? You know, the bees are dying. What if the bees all die? There's no pollination, there's no vegetation, there's no, there's no fruit, there's no food, we all die. What if there's a final heat death? And on, on the back of all these realities, you know, the fact that we're often squaring up to and we're, we're, we're coming to terms with the fact that we might not, that the humanity may not have a future. Many people then try and find quick escape routes. Well, we could, we could go to Mars. But going to Mars is like launching a, a lifeboat out of the Titanic, isn't it? It's not very comfortable existence, temporary at best. And even if you don't believe any of that stuff, even if you're, you're, you kind of have this blind optimism about the future, even if that's the case, still you're going to die. Your life is going to be snuffed out. And death is the end. What hope is there? What meaning is there? What purpose is there? Why do you do anything? The resurrection changes that. The empty tomb, the angel says to these women, he says, you will see him just as he told you. That's the Christian hope. You will see him just as he told you. When everything around you feels uncertain and full of fear and, and dismay and despair, the Christian is attached to this hope. The, the Bible says it's like an anchor that goes into the holy places. And you, you're, you're tied to that anchor. The, the rope secures you to that anchor. This is your hope. You will see him. Which means that life is not purposeless. And out of this flows this mission which the women inherited and which then was born within the Christian church. But go tell. I don't think there's any purpose if, if, if death is the end. But if Christ was raised from the dead, suddenly meaning is injected into everything in this life because everything lasts, because there are consequences, because there is an end in mind that God has planned for his creation, because you and I inherit dignity and mission and purpose. We'll go tell. 
nothing else in my mind explains the, the irrepressible, explosive growth of the early church. Here they were, a bunch of downtrodden, often you know, minority people or slaves living in an oppressive regime that was the Roman Empire with nothing that even, even approximated to justice. And the Christian faith just spread like wildfire among such people. Why? Because when they looked around them, they saw the systems of this world, the governments of this world, and their future prospects in this life, they were hopeless. But when they looked at Jesus raised from the dead, they felt hope again. And hope is the fuel upon which the human heart lives and survives. Hope is what keeps you breathing. And that irrepressible hope began to bubble up within the early church and turned it into an unstoppable force that has changed the world and continues to change the world. And friends, this is your invitation to know this kind of life. I think it's possible to to listen to a message like this and to be like the women who walked away on that day. Everything changed, I'm sure, later on for them. But on that particular day, it says they went out, fled from the tomb, trembling, astonished, said nothing, they were afraid. I think it's possible to walk out of here no different from the way you came in, with the same fears, the same doubts, and the same despair that you may have brought in with you, or that might dog you or hang over you. But let the resurrection shine its light into your heart by the power of the Spirit. And these things are chased away and your life is changed. God gives you courage in the place of fear. He gives you certainty in the place of doubt. And he gives you hope in the place of despair. Why don't we come to God now in prayer. I'm going to invite Pete to come and lead us in a response of worship. I want us to to bow our heads and to ask that God, by his Spirit, will bring these things to land in our own hearts. I think it takes a work of the Spirit to let this message really shape and transform you. But let's pray for that. Father, we we are a people, Lord, who, though eager to know the truth, Lord, are so easily blinded by confusion and doubt and lies. And Lord, despite the inadequacy of my role in seeking to communicate this, I pray, Father, that the light of your truth by the work of your Spirit will bring a kind of penetrating power at work in our hearts that brings about transformation and change. I pray for freedom, for liberty for us, Lord, that because we know Christ is raised, we'll, we'll leave this place changed and transformed. I pray you'll, you'll raise up in our church, Lord, people who embody this courage and this conviction, this hope-filled certainty that allows us to lift our heads, to go through life with confidence, celebrating, happy, joyful, living in the good of the announcement that they heard that day. I pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.